Hello, and welcome to the 200th episode of The Space Cave. A big warg to all of you spaceburgers out there. And apologies that our 200th episode came out a little bit late. As you can maybe tell right now, my voice isn't doing... It isn't sounding 100% normal. Uh, kind of set in Saturday before the final shows I had at Acme in Minneapolis. So I've been drinking pretty much nonstop... Um, recommendations. If you're like, you should drink this. I've been drinking that. I've had all the stuff and it's almost better. I kept waiting, thinking it was going to get back to normal. Finally, I just decided uh, I would record these so that uh, you can listen to the conversation because our voices sound normal in those. So I hope you'll uh, excuse these little intros. And my voice really doesn't sound that different. It just um, is a kind of a bother to talk which someone came to the show Saturday and was introduced to me, and I said, hey, sorry, I'm trying not to talk a whole lot. And then I felt like a real jerk. But it was the case, because it always seems like a few words won't do any harm. But then the next thing you know, just like this is going right now, you can start to feel it creep in, like, oh, no, too many words. So uh, my live dates are kind of over for the time being. I'll probably do some more um, maybe before the year's out. And likely uh, some more stuff going into 2020. Thanks to those of you who did come out. Uh, Minneapolis was great. Saw a lot of friendly faces. A couple even uh, Space Cave people. So a big warg to all of you. And uh, if you haven't heard any of my stand-up, you can listen to it on Pandora and Spotify. You can get albums anywhere you get the albums. And One-Headed Beast is an animated special I made that is on uh, Amazon Prime as well as the Roku channel. It's an animated endeavor that, like... Over 20 people, just 20 animators. And then additionally, there was there were prop makers and artists and set designers and a seamstress even. We had all kinds of stuff. And Tiny Dancers, like, uh, she's a seamstress for the band. And everyone goes, what band has a seamstress? Well, I'll tell you, this comedian has at least a familiarity. She's not my seamstress, but... Uh, and then this new thing we're working on, a second stream seamstress was added as well. So I got a few seamstresses in my world, you guys. So go watch A One-Headed Beast if you'd like. And if you leave a comment, it only helps with the algorithm and things like that. And I also appreciate it. So perhaps you haven't uh, joined in the Patreon or you don't have the resources to do that. That's fine. But if you already have Amazon Prime, it just takes a little bit of your time to do a nice little, uh, a little help out for your old pal, Dave. Okay. As I mentioned, it's number 200. Let's get to it. It's a continuation of a great chat. Really interesting guy. Uh, and I find it odd that he was hesitant to reach out because so many of the things that he enjoys are things that I think are not only uh, synonymous with this podcast, but things I'm also heavily interested in. And uh, it was great to sit down and chat about them. Here's part two with Yoichi Shiga. All right. Well, we, yeah, we skipped over some stuff in the beginning, kind of, or, or <laughs> lightly touched on it. People, I'm sure, heard, like, aerospace engineering, like, wait, 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 you went to a, a magnet school for art stuff, and then you get done with that and decide, like, I'm getting my undergrad in, what do you want to, like, build airplanes? Or yeah, I should, I should probably just lay it out, because it wasn't, um, I never really had a great plan mm-hmm. for what I was doing. Um but yeah, so I think in, after high school, I was like, okay, I was I was good at I was good at math already. Like that was the thing that I think I was into even before, um, and I was really into space. I was like a big NASA nerd, and I mm-hmm. think in like in middle school I had to do a project on something, and I picked some something out of NASA. I learned like way too much about all sorts of random stuff, and I remember actually. Because that was back a little before, like, internet research was how you did a project. And this was, like, you had to go to the library and pick yeah. up a book. And I remember in this one of these books, they had the pictures that they had taken from Apollo 13 of, like, the outside of the part of the 
spaceship that had like sort of exploded and it was like the side panel that had been blown off but they mm-hmm. were like taking pictures of it as they had detached and i remember thinking my god these guys it was like they're out there and like it like a, you know so imagine if like the hood of your car flew off <laughs> and then like you just ended up jumping in another car and you took some pictures going out, but they're in space you know so i was like obsessed with space already but sort of in high school i was like oh okay well i'm doing this computer animation thing i applied to some schools but those schools are all like private if you want to do animation and i was like that costs money i don't have any money and so um i was like okay well i'll apply to other state schools and i had sort of picked basically random majors for every school <laughs> it was like physics at one aerospace engineering at another and like something else and so i just happened to go to the one that was like aerospace engineering it was at uc san diego oh, so cool. I was like, okay cool let's do this and then there you're kind of like once you're in the major you're like locked in and you just do all the classes i think i took maybe not even like four outside like four classes where i could actually choose yeah and i remember those they were great social psychology i always <laughs> i i still can like recite things because those are like the no, my favorite sort of experiments where they bring you into a room they put have you do these things but like the whole experiment was like when you were sitting in the waiting room and yeah like, did you eat the peanuts or the, the chocolates <laughs> or something like that so um so yeah did aerospace engineering and then my last year I did some research uh, with like this new professor who was kind of a mix between mechanical engineering and environmental engineering. Uh, so I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. Like this is an environmental side of things. And I think I graduated like in 2008 when like the economy was like, yeah. and so I was like applying for engineering jobs and I was like, ter- you know, like I never, I didn't like learn how to interview and stuff so i remember i'd be like oh yeah (laughs) they'd like be asking questions and i was like so oblivious i was like i i don't know like i was like you want me to do that now you know like i was just like the worst i didn't get any job why do you want to work here (laughs) great question i hadn't thought about that yeah i remember i remember on one phone interview they're like well what's like your expected salary and i was like well i don't know (laughs) it's just like am i supposed to know this stuff so it was you know i was young i didn't know what i was doing so i so i was in san diego so i just spent a year tutoring kids and because te- i also like teaching tutoring kids and teaching sort of science and engineering at this after school um sort of science enrichment program which was awesome but i didn't have any money so i was like ah let's go to grad school you know and so mm-hmm. applied to grad schools and i was like oh yeah environmental stuff sounds cool and it was <laughs> the same kind of thing i was like just picking random departments that i could still use some of so my background so you never really got to work in aerospace engineering so i did like no no just like i did some internships Mm -hmm. or i did an internship at the navy uh down in point loma i think you spent some time in san diego right yeah 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 so down in point loma there's a navy base on the end and so i spent a summer working there and that was awesome (laughs) except for like it ended up just being me like like the guy i worked with was great but he was like this old dude and he was kind of just like he'd always tell me stories he was from texas he's always he always had these ridiculous stories like well like you know how he like would have to drive down to the oil fields and like there's alligators like it was like all these like crazy things i was like wait when did this happen and how are you how did you get to your job and he's like ah whatever anyways just go out and solve these equations and (laughs) i didn't know what i was doing but I got to play a lot of beach volleyball. It was kind of like a Top Gun style. Yeah, yeah. And so it was like <laughs> so funny like because- very close to where I they got, shot that. I got really good at beach volleyball because there was a weekly game and they transferred me to this other division <laughs> because that was where the volleyball happened. And, they were, and I wasn't that good, but I think I was just like a young kid. And, um, and so they were doing like autonomous robots. This is like all like, now I'm sure those guys are making a lot of money because they're all the autonomous cars. But that was like yeah. the early, I remember they had these robots that would try to- go through a like a doorway but and so they had like thousands of lines of code to just make sure that they you know could fit in the the doorway and i think this was all for sending it to you know like the middle east to map out buildings or like do like bomb defusal type stuff was this was a byproduct of this like the vroomba or something i'm guessing i'm (laughs) guessing actually because the guy who ran that lab his name was uh, Bart and so their robots were called Robart <laughs> and like <laughs> nice. and like they had and, but yeah so you'd see this robot sort of like sizing up the door and it'd be like and then like you're doing this funny wiggle people aren't gonna be able to hear but you're kind of like salsa dancing like a robot and then it would like slowly move forward and then it could like go right through the door but it would take it like a half an hour okay so then I did aerospace engineering I wasn't super into it I liked it, 
But, uh, and then I couldn't find a job, so I was like, all right, grad school. I got into this cool program uh, at University of Michigan, and so that the professor that I was working with, she... What, sorry to j- yeah. jump in, but I, I'm trying to... Because, you know, you're going to schools for undergrad and just kind of picking, like, physics or this. <laughs> did you do similar with grad school? Like, did, was it environmental engineering all the way at every place you applied? It was all environmental engineering, but slightly different focuses. And so the thing yeah. is, is, I had no idea what a PhD was when I was applying to them. Like, <laughs> Who are you? I, I, like, I didn't, like, I didn't actually, like, understand, like, the full process of, and so now I see people coming in who are, like, coming to get, they're, like, going to be a new PhD, and, like, oh, yeah, I want to research this topic, and, and I've done some, pre, you know, research before, and I know what the topic is, and I know what sort of question I was, yeah. and I was kind of, like, Oh, I'll do that. I'll, I'll I, show up. My sister drew, and I like space, and now I'm here. Exactly. No, it was like not like I, and I, and I think this is a product of like just you know I didn't have anyone in my family who did graduate school type stuff, and when I was an undergrad, I didn't know like you should maybe ask someone mm-hmm. what they do as in a PhD. I was just like I, I was involved, but I wasn't like you know. I think there's a lot of experiences that I didn't didn't have exposed to me and so i was like oh okay i think it probably would have helped if i knew a little bit better mm-hmm. what i was doing <laughs> <laughs> so then i was like okay and i think it i mean you know there's a lot of other things that that probably would have would have helped just even like how to get how to you know be a productive student because i think i didn't really start taking it seriously till the end of undergrad and i remember my family would all make fun of me i think I think I learned how to study. <laughs> They're like, oh, you're a junior in college. You just learned how to study. <laughs> I was like, but I didn't actually. I, I thought I did. And then I went to grad school. I realized I did not know how to really like Were you, because you say like math, were you one of those people that like it just intuitively kind of showed up so you didn't have to like hit the books and really go over it? You're like, yeah, I just kind of get this. I, you know, so I, I don't know. I think I liked I liked it. I think that was the big difference. So I liked math. I remember even when my so my older sister was two years older than me when she was like I can remember that was like when she was learning algebra. You know, I was still in I don't know what grade, and I remember I'd look at her book and I'd be like, Ooh, oh, that's what a derivative is. You know, like mm-hmm. oh, okay. And then so I felt like a lot of you know even high school it was mainly just oh I had already looked ahead kind of, and then and then you seem like you're smarter but it's and I actually learned uh, so I'd, I had done some teaching and I had learned about like pacing in schools and I think uh, uh, that like how we pace people you know like you everyone comes in the classroom and you get the material sort of at a single rate mm-hmm. and if you fall behind you're seen as stupid yeah um, but if you can pick stuff up quickly you're seen as smart but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're smarter because uh, basically, they did this test where they give students uh, all the material at their own rates. And they say that a lot of kids will pick stuff up quickly. They get stuck later. And at the end of the year, they're, they're kind of all at the same speed. And the people who are slower in the beginning, once they get it, then they get moving and they can bypass these kids. So I think a lot of it, the, just the way that the school system was set up, uh, you know, it, it makes it easier for people who can learn things a little bit quicker. And, yeah. um, and then you're kind of always a little bit ahead. But I didn't, I also, and I think that's why a lot of people don't like math too, because they're just like, I don't get it right away. And then you get a lot of people who say, oh, math sucks. You know, your parents are always like, oh God, I hate that. And so I was always kind of like, and I did have like a good teacher, Mr. Fink. Nice. If you're still out there. (laughs) Um, He was awesome. He liked Star Wars. And so he would let me, like once I was done with all the material, he'd let me like play like Star Wars video games on this like later computer. That was like in eighth grade. So I got... So I got into math, so yeah, so I had a sort of propensity for that, and I loved physics in high school. Um, but yeah, and, and when applying for grad schools, yeah, I didn't quite know how it all would, I didn't do it like necessarily the right way, I'd, I'd say, for folks who were probably just going into it, just like, oh, okay, environmental engineering, <laughs> and like here and there. Well, your desire to live out in the woods, did that factor in it? What was the philosophical side of yeah. you having an awakening? Like, I gotta do something about this environment, I gotta help. So I did, I did think that, yeah, the aerospace side of things yeah, sort of got me down because a lot of the jobs were like, we're going to be building rockets. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I felt like, at, and, and the research I did my, my senior year was like, cool. I was like, oh, we're learning how 
you know, basically we were setting up weather stations around campus and how we could better design the buildings to not have to use all the resources that we're using to keep them cool and all this other stuff. And so I thought that was interesting. And yeah, it's like more applied. It's like, oh, this is the world we're living in. Um, but were you having sort of a, oh, we could launch rockets, my favorite thing, space, but boy, that's a lot of pollution coming out of those things. Was that a factor at all? So I don't know if I, I quite had that thought process yet. I think mm-hmm. at the time, because I was still really into space at the time. I remember yeah. I still was, that was kind of like right when SpaceX was forming. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this would be so <laughs> cool to work for them. But they were still pretty new. And I remember the type of experience you needed was like, you had to have already done all of the different, you know, you needed to have an experience in materials and structures and avionics and propulsion. And I was like, I just graduated. <laughs> I can't do any of that, you know? <laughs> so um, I was kind of like, darn, but... I, I don't know. I, so I have this this uh, balancing act because I think space and getting out there and, and launching rockets and, and exploring is super cool. Mm-hmm. And it's like and it's something that I feel like humanity eventually has got to do and should do. But then there's all these other pressing needs that are what we're dealing with right now. Mm-hmm. And how do you kind of and I think there's always going to be like a balance between you know where you have limited resources and where are we going to spend them and how are we going to move forward and i think that's where more like philosophy and you know stuff that you talk a lot about on this <laughs> podcast like comes into play because not all of those decisions can be made just by science and engineering you can't necessarily and i think at a, one of the one of the kind of basic ones is if we want to have like let's just say we're going to calculate a goodness factor of the planet yeah um what are we going to base that on if we're going to do all these things towards optimizing the you know goodness are we going to try and have just like the average goodness of all people on the planet which you and then you could make an argument that are we at that are we above or below that currently? And going back to like the decision to animate things in a sloppy manner or yeah. put a piece of wood up that has a little <laughs> gap between it and the wall, you look at planet Earth and go, boy, it'd be nice if we f- handled that starvation aspect there, got a little <laughs> bit better with our <laughs> like ecosystems and, and also taking care of the poor and the homeless. That'd be nice. And, and, and really curing some of those diseases. Okay, once we get that all done, then we'll go out into space. And then... The other, the the other side of your brain would be going like, it's never going to happen. We're, we got to we got to put that board in with a little bit of a gap, <laughs> so it's always going to kind of have this. Let's go to space anyway. Yeah, and that's a rough thing to think about because I I would imagine when you're thinking about that, there is that feeling of let's just utilize all these resources that we currently have, solve all this stuff, make planet Earth this sort of utopia, mm-hmm. then go looking for somewhere else. But I've given up on that long ago. (laughs) (laughs) I still like, yeah, so there's a, um, have you ever read uh, any of Kim Stanley Robinson's book? He had like Mm -hmm. the red Mars, green Mars, blue Mars. Oh, okay. I've heard of this. I I have not read it. I think you'd like it. Um, Because they talk about, they end up, you know, getting the settlement on Mars and they talk about essentially having to reinvent how society works Mm because they have the choice to do that. So they're like, we can just do things in different ways. We don't have to have the same type of government, the same type of economic structures. Yeah. And so they come up and, and, and it's really, it's fascinating. It's, it's a great series. It's kind of technical. It gets really sort of, I think they call that like hard sci-fi. <laughs> hard sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it gets like really into like, you know, the geology of Mars and stuff. And, um, but, but, uh, but I, uh, yeah, but there's, there's one aspect that I remember thinking, and I'm not sure if this is from this book, but where they talk about how governments work, that rather than how we elect people and they sort of run sort of like popularity contests, that it's that all government folks are just um, like it's like jury duty. Mm-hmm. You just have to do your time. Yeah. And you don't really, you know, people aren't, ex- I mean, because if you think about it, okay, yes, there are elected officials who are very qualified to do their job but there's some that have no training at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, and you think like, if you just randomly pick people, um, that they may, you know, you'd kind of get the average and maybe it's not the best thing. Maybe you have folks that 
really don't know what they're doing. But um, I don't know. That's that's side side <laughs> sidebar. Yeah, losing. you could get distracted yeah. by that pretty quickly. Losing focus. <laughs> but um, okay. So then I finally. So yeah. So the topic I, I studied for when I ended up getting to to grad school. And this is in um, Michigan. This is in Michigan. So I started in Michigan, and then I finished at Stanford. And so the thing that happened to me, which happens to um, quite a few PhDs, uh, but it, you'd never hear about it if you're not doing a PhD, is that my advisor moved institutions while I was doing my PhD. And so you have different options of what you can do. You can either stay at the old institution and try and find a new advisor or stay at the old institution, sort of like work it out long distance kind of thing, mm-hmm. or you move to the new institution, and but then you kind of have to restart some things. Yeah. So I ended up moving. Um, it was kind of tough on the relationship. We had to do long distance for a couple uh, years because my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, she was finishing up her program at Michigan. So that was so. You guys rough. both went together. Or you met there. We both went together. So we had just started dating in San Diego, um, and then we were applying for graduate programs. And it was sort of like we we're at the point in the relationship where like we only been dating for like a year, so we're just gonna pick whichever places like the best for us mm-hmm. uh, and they just happened to both be Michigan um, so we got lucky so they yeah. offered me the best program and that was like the best school she got into so sweet yeah so that worked out and then you had to be like well yeah exactly then two years <laughs> later I was like alright I'll see you in two years hopefully um, that's rough yeah it was and really you made it rough. through though that's yeah, great we did. yeah so that was definitely a challenge and, uh, and and luckily she is from California and we were both from California and so um, so yeah so then I was at Stanford for a while, it took me like another six years or so. Really? Yeah, it was it was a long haul, long Man. long haul. So, <laughs> but I think part of that is the fact that I didn't really know what I was getting into when I started. But you probably like as you learned how to study oh, as yeah. a junior. Yeah. By the time you're year two or three in a PhD program, you're you're like a professional student in a way where like you're starting to really understand what a PhD is. It, did it just take you a long time to figure out what you wanted to zero in on, like what the the thrust of your thesis was going to be or well i think the thing is is like once i got good at being like a student like learning really hard stuff then i got into like the the meat of a phd which isn't really being a student you're being a researcher Mm -hmm. which is a completely different set of skills and uh and i read recently that it's sort of like a um what was it it was like there's some article that's that's old now that was sort of like the um the benefit of stupidity or something like that. Mm-hmm. That basically you're surrounded by all these smart people when you're doing your PhD. You know nothing. Yeah. You know what someone explained to me. You don't know the first thing about the first thing. <laughs> you know, you're kind of like in this black hole and then you're trying to like grab a little piece of knowledge, hang on to it, and then try, you know, try to figure something out or try and come up with like a new idea. Um, and so I think it took me a while to figure out how to do that where there's no structure. You're just out there exploring and my advisor, I think, was good in that she allowed me to sort of do my own, you know, find my own way rather than just being like, here, just work on this project and go do yeah. it. And I think a lot of people who burn through PhDs either come in with that idea or they're given an idea and they're like, okay, I'm just going to do that and go. I also kind of am not the most sort of a linear thinker. And so I kind of like bounced around like, well, this is kind of cool. Oh, this thing's kind of <laughs> cool. And so I kind of, and she kind of gave me latitude to go all over the place trying out sort I of new things. college in so many ways, for some people it's this, there's a socioeconomic aspect put into it where some people are going to go, never show up to class, just show up for the exams, get a business degree or something, get a job at their father's wherever Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, I went to college. Other people show up and really hustle and get a degree that they know the value of it. They know they're going to go to work and everywhere in between liberal arts Mm -hmm. people. But I remember having a TA, a physics guy that I would see around campus bare feet sometimes be doing tai chi sometimes it would disappear for a while <laughs> and he was really pursuing it you know like he'd come in and talk about how he was getting close to working on like a unified equation for things and mm-hmm. he's working with his advisor on how to like how are they gonna crack this and that and every now and again he'd reveal to us you know like i i gotta 
I got a new angle I'm taking now, so I'm really busy <laughs> on this. And I thought that's what college should be, where like you're an adult, so they let you in and just kind of go, yeah, yeah, just like roam around here wherever you need, and get the information you need. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll recognize it as it appeal appears to you, but it, you're done with just having to go like memorize this chapter, pass this exam. And like we know you can do that. Now it's just up to you to like, what do you want to learn? You don't even know what you really want to do. See if you can find it here. Yeah. And so it sounds like six years was kind of a little bit of that where. Yeah. When did you finally lock in on it and be like, okay, this is what I want it to be? Well, I think I started, you know, it's like slowly developing because you have to at some point, uh, or it depends on the program, you have to do this sort of qualifying. You have to essentially, uh, they prevent you from doing that sort of thing <laughs> for too long. You have to say, you have to propose what you're going to be actually doing in, in the years of your PhD or in the your dissertation. And so I had to put some stuff together and then I also hit some speed bumps. So like one of those major projects, like some of the data never came through or there was like an error in a lot of the, uh, we were like, we were collaborating with somebody else and they had done all these model runs and there was an error in all those runs and it would have taken, or it took like months for that to get back together. And so, and so, you know, you have to kind of switch gears. So I was like, okay, well, I gotta come up with something new for that. Um, and then part of it was like, just for me personally it was tough to stay motivated on this thing because you kind of start to feel like i've explained it to other folks as like you're in a sailboat and there's no wind because you're (laughs) like i know i gotta get somewhere but like you kind of feel like i got all this stuff to do but you're like "Ah," you know yeah i'm doing it for so long i don't know you know and so i think there's a lot of it that was just personally even though i was interested in the stuff when i did it it's just hard to kind of keep going and you see your friends, they've got jobs. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, like doing like or traveling the world or yeah. like going to Burning Man. You're like, okay, just going to keep on coding away here. And you're, <laughs> and it's kind of isolating, you know. So I think there's a lot of aspects. I, I mean, obviously, PhD is the hardest thing I've ever done, you know. So I think that there are other challenges that, that filter in that are probably filtering with other any job that anyone's doing. But I think it's... Yeah, it can be isolating, even mm-hmm. though I had good lab mates and all that sort of stuff. So, Was there a part, because you said it's really difficult, but was there a part when you're like, get that gust of wind, and now oh, you're yeah. sailing, and maybe the boat's going so fast that you can't think about all the things you would when you're just quiet, you're just, you're in, you're sailing, like you got to just focus on, Yeah, was that the best part, or was that a kind of a terrifying part? I think those are the good parts. Yeah, I think um, once I got moving, once like the projects that I was working, so like the first project I think just took a long time to get my, just my bearings and figure out, but like the second two chapters of my PhD were things that I were much more excited about working on, which I haven't even explained really what I did. Yeah, I would so keep I, waiting to drop the, the sort yeah. of, fi- so you. So I, I, I think I said in the email, I'm a, I wrote carbon, yeah. I said carbon tracker or carbon cowboy. So yeah. I tried to explain to my family and, and cousins what I do. And one of my cousins came up with the turn. So you're like a carbon cowboy out there tracking, <laughs> out there wrangling up that carbon, <laughs> tracking it down. Uh, and my, 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 my cousin doesn't have an accent. He's just from Santa Cruz, but he just jokes around. So, um, so yeah, so uh, the work that I do, I, it's a kind of a combination of engineering and ecology where to get like a big sort of a large scale picture of where how co2 is exchanging in on the earth we use and you in the email said that there is no such thing as climate change right (laughs) (laughs) oh god no no (laughs) so here's the so everyone has a cousin and then your your cousin sounds fantastic say you're a carbon cowboy a lot of other cousins and uncles and people that didn't go to stanford don't know anyone that did for whatever reason frown on people that did they have read it one article or heard it on some news station Ah, that's not real yeah so to prepare people and try to make this as short as possible, but people get in these discussions and then go, well, I I mean, the scientists all believe in it, or this, this is why you go home to small town USA and now your uncle or cousin is giving you, well, prove it. Mm -hmm. What's the best thing to say that's short and concise that would, would allow people to go, huh? Okay. I'll look into it more. Not to say like, Oh, you were right. Just a, I'll give you that. I think that's tough. I wish I had like the short. So I, I mean, I think one of the, so one of the things I said to my, the thing I said to my grandfather, cause he was kind of that way. He was like pretty religious. He was like, well, I heard on Fox news out there. And so I was like, well, 
You know, ever since the Industrial Revolution, we've been burning way more fossil fuels. That's just pumping out coal. That's just, a, you know, that's undeniable. We've been, we're always burning fossil fuels. Everything we were driving in the car at the time, when I'm driving right now, we're spewing it out. Yeah. Where's it going? It's going to the atmosphere. That's undeniable. That's, and we, they measure it. It's been going up and up and up. And so if you want to leave it at that, leave it at that. Then you're just like, you know, it's out there. Um, and, and I think that was because I didn't want to get into a whole argument with my, my grandfather, you know. Um, <laughs> And then he was kind of like, okay, you know, because that is pretty easy. You can tell, like, you're from whoever's ever lived on the planet, you see that people are burning fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, and then all of the kind of cascade of things that happened from that. I think actually now there's way more things that you can point to because that was a few years, that was earlier in my PhD. So that was, <laughs> you know, but now it's like, I think in the past, I, I don't have all my stats, but I don't know however many of the past few like hottest ever Julys on the planet yeah. like in the past like three years or something right. like that um, and you know there's the, it depends on what you follow in the news of course I follow a bunch of like um, you know sort of environmental stuff so there's like melting sea ice and all sorts of like yeah like that mass weird extinctions out of nowhere yeah. are caused by that sort of stuff people will say and, and obviously I mean the planet has dealt with ice caps and not ice caps it's just a rock mostly but it's humans as far as we know are a new development on it and so for us to stay here it seems crazy that people wouldn't want cleaner air just regardless of it you know people go oh the pleistocene era there were x amount of the you know the volcanoes erupting there's this amount of material in the atmosphere so much worse than now like, yeah. Yeah, we weren't around then what yeah. the hell does that have to do with it yeah, and i think right now it's been like i think like the levels of co2 that we have it's been like, I don't know, 800,000, you know, some ridiculously long period of time. And I don't know, that seems pretty, I mean, it, 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 I think it, it, it really comes down to what you already believe. And I think that's what, so there's a, a good science, climate science communicator named Catherine Hayhoe, and she works in a university in Texas. And so she goes out to other folks who are really kind of combatant against her and her ideas and her approach is pretty different. It's pretty, I wouldn't say soft, but it, uh, it's, it's straight talking. It talks about, she talks about the facts, but she doesn't lead with that. She says that she starts to try and make a connection with what's something that they enjoy doing. So it's yeah. like, hey, you know, you grew up on a farm. You grew up out on a, a ranch or, or whatever. Yeah. You grew up out doing this. And I'm sure you loved out, you know, taking rides out into the woods or, oh, you know that area now is all burnt down, you know, or, mm -hmm. you know, that area. Yeah. When's the last time you've been out there? Or when's the last time there's enough water where you could grow stuff. And so yeah. there are a lot of things that, you know, that you can try and connect to on that level. And there's another, yeah, there's another great city where there are folks. And I want to say this is like Alabama or Mississippi somewhere in the South. I think this is something that Andy Revkin, he used to be at the New York times did where they asked these people, um, about like what they thought about climate change and all these things and they're very against it but when they asked them well would you put solar panels on your roof they're like well of course free energy <laughs> you're not stupid you know yeah. and so I think like there's like there's some part that people can connect to there's some part that they don't and I think in any argument there are different approaches to getting that information across and I think even in I, I was in DC a while ago and I went to like the african-american history museum which is fascinating but there's different voices there are people who are trying to kind of build up a camaraderie with folks to get them to change their minds and there's people who are activists who are really just blaring it like trying to make change in almost like a a very fast and violent way i don't know about violence the right word there but and i think that you're always going to need both of those people to get uh, something across and i think it's just kind of tough that something like climate change where it does really matter how quickly we change things i mean it, a lot of these things it matters how quickly we change things but um yeah it's 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 strange and the, the, it's also, yeah when you because you keep referencing things like opinions and that is such a frustrating word in that like the scientific community says here are the facts of things and and i just interviewed um uh davi uh, this guy um, sorry, Kasev, who like was saying, well, we don't really try to use the word facts too much. Just like here's what you know we've we've collected, here's what we think, but we don't want to get too hard, hard line. But I think most scientists would go, well, this is data. You can mm -hmm. take it as fact or not, but like th that shouldn't your opinion 
shouldn't factor into this equation as much as just, but I don't want it to be. And you have the fossil fuel industry that like people were, there's a, as today on Twitter, there's a boycott shell because they put a mandate out to their employees that if they didn't go to like a Trump rally, they'd lose their jobs. (laughs) Who knows how true that is, but still so crazy. But you're like, well, of course they'd be like, this is the greatest administration you could ever have <laughs> for us to just run wild. And I want my job still. <laughs> yeah, I want my job. <laughs> and if you work in the fossil fuel industry, even if you're there begrudging, like, I really wish I wasn't working on an oil pipeline or wherever my job is, I need it. I, mm-hmm. I have to work, and this is the best industry in the area I live. But I don't want to go to this rally. I, I, I kind of need to be a hypocrite. I want to just kind of stay home and or I just don't like rallies. Yeah. But you would think if you're the CEO of Shell, like, we've never had it better mm-hmm. and this is probably going to be a small window if fires keep happening and floods and, and the hottest recorded temperature year after year after year people are eventually going to start being like I don't care about my opinion I care about being able to hunt in that area that I grew up in or, or those kinds of things so hopefully the opinions will start factoring less and and the 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 revenue being generated by the the I would say the big sort of hidden hand that that puts out that opinion that offers that dissent that says hey there's a lot of money to be made and it's really not that bad things are fine yeah even even like the yeah i mean so i think the, the uh, yeah and i think the the political and and economic and and there's so many other sort of yeah like what well, you said like the hand that's kind of operating there's a lot well you know that's not my like my focus it's not like yeah my i know you, you currently yeah. are working yeah. for a government institution your views are your own and not yeah. those of your employer yeah, no but i think I, there's a scientist who i worked with and he said that like my job as a human being is to kind of advocate for the things i believe in but my job as a scientist is to create sort of meaningful information or useful data or something like that mm-hmm. and um and yeah and i think there's so many things that i think are are to some people feel like oh that seems a little weird like how come I, I think I even heard recently that a lot of these bigger companies that have investments in fossil fuels, they're trying to actually push for people to like focus more on individual actions because it takes the heat off of these large institutional changes that would yeah. actually make really big differences. So they say, oh yeah, you should focus on you know, making sure you're not eating meat and you should focus on this little thing, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, which we all should, you know, take, uh, you know, personal stock and, and, and doing what we can, but all, if, even if everybody did, you know, all that we could at the individual level, um, there still needs to be these big institutional changes. Um, but yeah, so, yeah, so technically I'm not a government employee, so I'm a, con- a contractor. Okay. Yeah. And so I had to, yeah, no carbon cowboy is going to be out there <laughs> working for you. <laughs> no, but I do work at a government facility. Yeah, it's a funny. So I just got a new job. So I work for USRA, which is the University Space Research Association. And yeah, I think I have to say, I just went through my like training. I have to say that this, that my, my views are my own and yeah. They, are, yeah, <laughs> they don't represent the company at all. But um, But yeah, the work that I do... Yeah, it essentially does try to track where where CO two is going to, going and where it's coming from, using observations in the atmosphere. So those can be measured at towers. There's towers all around the world that measure the concentrations of CO two from satellites that measure CO two from space. Yeah, uh, airplanes that fly around that measure it, and then we combine that data with other models of how the atmosphere kind of moves things around, and then we try and estimate essentially how much carbon or CO2 or other gases, people use the same methods for methane, um, is coming out of the surface. And so the that technique is called inverse modeling because you're starting sort of with something that's already been emitted and then you're kind of working backwards. So the other term I've used is like, I'm like the Sherlock Holmes of, of carbon because I have all this evidence in the atmosphere, but I got to figure out where did it come from? What's happened to it? Ah, you know, when they caught the Golden State Killer, <laughs> they they built out the furthest sort of um, paternal and maternal genealogy and then worked backwards from that. So they started with, it could have been all these people and let's just yeah. go through and start eliminating. So you're doing something yeah. very similar to that. But is it going to go back to like, aha, Detroit, <laughs> was the Industrial Revolution, <laughs> Cleveland. This is way back. In, is it going to be that sort of thing? Um, so it, that specific? So... So it can be. So we. So how it works is, and I have another. This is another funky analogy. 
is, I, I, and I, I use this a lot. So if I had, so if you had a coffee cup mm-hmm. and uh, you were pouring cream into that coffee cup, essentially what I'm trying to figure out is how much cream went into that coffee cup by the color of the coffee. Yeah. So if you only had one little, little uh, packet of creamer, it would be pretty easy. It all came from that, even once you found out exactly how much. Well, let's say you had a giant bathtub full of coffee and you had your friends all around <laughs> and you're pouring a little bit, everyone's pouring yeah. a little bit of creamer and you're stirring it around. You, you really want to track like, oh, hey, is Jimmy over there, is he the one that's dumping the most creamer in? Um, and so to track that back, you would need more than just one measure of what the color of the bathtub is. You need all these little measures at all different yeah. frequencies. And then you'd also have a pr- need to have a good model of like how the bathtub's swirling and stuff. And so the more measurements you have, the more um, sort of, or I guess like the higher resolution you could attribute where the carbon's coming from. And the other thing that gets mixed in where I think most people, when they think of CO2, they think of, oh, just pollution, just like me driving my car or those companies. But on, um, I guess on an annual level, the, the most exchange between the surface and the atmosphere is actually from vegetation. Um, the thing is, is that plants, they suck up carbon during the growing season when they're photosynthesizing, but then they release a lot of it during sort of the dormant season. So on a, if you sum it up over the annual, it's pretty small, Mm -hmm. but at any given moment, uh, the gross value is pretty large from the vegetation. So figuring out the anthropogenic or the human sort of portion of that can be kind of tricky. So it's, it's, there's a lot of kind of, uh, so when you're trying to figure out like, hey, is it coming from this state and it's coming from this time, that sort of thing gets more and more challenging. And that's why I say it's a mix of engineering and, and ecology because the type of sort of math and statistics that you need to use to sort of pinpoint, okay, well, we have, it's kind of like corroborating evidence. Well, yeah. we've got this other, you know, we see the spike here, but the winds were coming maybe from this direction. So it maps onto a region that's, you know, maybe is, is urban, but if you have a, a sort of CO2 going down and that's coming, air coming from a forest. So, man, this is because when you hear about the genealogy thing with the Golden State guy, you're like, well, that's is outlandish. And then the more you read or learn about it, you go, oh, I guess I could see where a team all like minded could one by one just go through it. But this coffee analogy <laughs> is to me infinitely more complicated because DNA going back to data and facts is either a yes or no or or it's certainly like 99.999 probability type thing whereas if you don't know the original color of the coffee and and then people get into the the kind of negative or, or the I feel like that it always gets termed doomsday or something like, mm-hmm. Oh, you're all alarmists. Mm-hmm. And then the moment we've crossed that threshold, you go, see you idiots. And those same people go, you should have yelled louder. You should have <laughs> told us more. Like, we were passing links around every day. Everyone was <laughs> screaming about it to you. And you kept saying, nah, it's just, it's just a thing. The point where the coffee gets too creamy mm-hmm. to, it's not even coffee anymore to a point where like, and people Every year that we've passed the point of no return, we yeah. cannot correct this. But are, can we at least start to know, like, would it would it re- re- like return to coffee status <laughs> if we did something? Yeah. So that's like a so the so the questions I sort of tried to answer in my PhD were mainly focused just on the, the I guess the land atmosphere exchange. So how much CO two is coming out? How are the plants? Actually, a lot of it was trying to figure out how are the plants responding because we don't. But when uh, you do, so you're you're modeling, you're doing a lot of code, you're writing algorithms, mm-hmm. and you're maybe bringing in a plant, me purely just guessing, and you're studying just a single plant, then there are so many factors outside of that in nature that you can't replicate maybe in your lab or your research facility, but you get an idea. Okay, this amount came in, this amount was released, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think what we're, so a lot of what the, the methods that that I developed or that I helped uh, work on during my PhD was really to try, I guess, back to like the coffee thing. It's not to get the exact sort of amount from each person was to, but to give like a range for each person and say like, we know you're within e- this range for every single person. Yeah. And 
that range is based on all the uncertainties that we have. We try and be as, sort of as honest as we can about how much, what we understand and what we don't understand. And so we're not gonna trying to say, hey, this is the exact number, but it's like, we're, you guys are in this range and that range is pretty big right now. Or maybe in certain areas that range is smaller because we have more data there. And then what we, we use that to, to sort of, how we use that to further science from other folks is saying, hey, you guys, we're building these models, like you were saying. I got this model that can, uh, you know, I take all these measurements from plants and I can create a model of how the world works, how yeah. the photosynthesis happens. And so they'll run their model and then we can say, we can take that model essentially, put it in, compare it to our estimates and say, oh yeah, you're within our estimates. Uh-huh. You're doing okay. I don't know where you need <laughs> to improve. Maybe there's one area where you're not so great, um, but there's tons of people doing these models. and everyone's trying to create the best model so they're all sort of doing their best but we i had a paper where i had yeah like 10 different models and they're all trying to estimate how much co2 is being sort of transferred between just the vegetation of north america Mm -hmm. and they're all over the place and they're all (laughs) trying to do the same thing and when you compare it with the data you can say like oh hey you know the, uh, the data says that you guys should be in this range um the models are built really in and this really it's a, it's a really complicated you know you have data in, in one area that you measured from certain plants or you have these um sort of theories about how plants you know respond to light and temperature and humidity and all these things and so we understand how that works in a laboratory setting but the world's so complicated yeah and so but this is oh, it's to that weird cousin or uncle guy yeah this is the type of stuff that makes them go see science doesn't know they know, they can't possibly know all this stuff and then all the time everyone goes no, no no we all know relatively within this scope of work we yeah. don't know the exact detail yet it's still new it's still new science where the, the coffee and the cream are still swirling around in this gigantic bathtub, yeah. which is starting to narrow in where like at least your modeling and that before it, the year after year, even though they're getting hotter and hotter and worse and worse, they're helpful, right? Each yeah. year that you add. To oh, like, yeah. So totally. But I think like the stuff I'm looking at is, is a, little, a little bit more nuanced. So we're trying to say, hey, are the boreal forests in North America doing this or are the you know, deciduous forests in this region of North America doing that. Whereas if we pump carbon into the atmosphere and we do more and more, that's kind of, that's a little bit easier in terms of the physics of things of how the the planet's going to respond. And so I think just because we may not be able to pinpoint, oh, like, hey, that one forest is doing one thing, you know, as a planet, the physics behind how the planet's going to respond as you put more CO2 into the atmosphere like they figured that out a while ago and they've they, you know the projections if anything in certain areas haven't been you know the things have been i don't know if i'd say getting worse but getting hotter faster or melting f- faster than we had thought and um and there's still things that yeah that we don't know but i think a lot of people don't respond well to uncertainty and i think yeah. that's a human thing right we're not really built to just kind of like we talked about. We're not built for like statistics and, you know, we're built for causation. We're built for, oh, you throw this rock, hit someone in the head and that's what happens. And so I think there's so many other things that work against humans doing something when there's like a big looming, it's kind of like a PhD. There's this big looming thing you have to do out into the future. That's not what we're humans seem to be built on responding towards or for, or for. that's not like our, We live in this time where we're so aware of the idea of the consciousness that we share, that we individually have, the the flimsiness of how how really concrete this world is. Be like Westworld and things like that, where people go, "What? This is a simulation. What if this?" You have all these little aspects or elements involved in it that give you the heat death of the universe so the clock's ticking Mm -hmm. there could be an asteroid at any moment Mm -hmm. there could be a big meteor strike we'll all be dead then so we've got our defenses up we're looking around and yet every now and again something flies through and it's that one yeah otherwise we're we're prepared and we're and this is yet another one we're staving off to like let's keep this going and then if you looked at it from like a VR helmet thing, you'd go, that, that is the world. Like that's, you know, I, I like flying around. I like seeing new cities. I like performing, mm-hmm. but they're like the, the cabin out in the woods thing. Yeah. Uh, not just appeals for the quietness, but also like, there you go, earth. I'm not bothering you anymore. Yeah. I'm out here. Like I'm, 
minimally invasive and I'm going to try to like just use the resources around me. And even then I would still be more of a nuisance than the deer than whatever else theoretically, yeah. you know, so maybe they overpopulate and they're just a destructive force to a certain ecosystem. But overall we and or I much worse. Yeah. So then I can't decide. And I think that's how some people do it. Like, whoop, it's all burning up. Let's just have fun while it's going. And the, I get mad at that. But in a way I'm kind of doing that. I'm flying to shows. I'm, I'm still a part of it. Yeah, but you're not actively working against it, right? <laughs> it's not like you're taking your trash can and you're throwing it out the window, right? Yeah. And so I think there's some, and I don't understand. I think that's what I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand how, you know, it's kind of like if, if someone's in a restaurant and you just knock their drink over, you know? Like, I don't, <laughs> like, what, why, do, why would you do that? Sort yeah. of. It's like, that's not adding, you know, you can kind of try to do your part. And yeah, I think that, that into the woods, I don't know if that's just like a, every like at a t- certain time in your life when you get that real because i remember when i was talking about it a friend of mine was like do you ever read the unabombers like i uh, think <laughs> i was like oh god i gotta get away from this type of thinking because then i was like what's happened to me but there is some weird feeling where like i got all this stuff what do i i don't need all this stuff yeah um and and yeah and and i mean so there's a that's that there's a Car- carl sagan quote that's like the open road still softly calls or something like that. And I think that's true. I think as humans, we must have this pull to maybe go out into the woods, but to also venture out and do more and go and do, you know, like to get to Mars or to get yeah. out there. And so I think that, you know, cause we've been on the planet for a long time. That has to be built in to, uh, to some of us at least, right? That has we're, the, we're the mold. We got to get to the next slice. <laughs> <laughs> it's just inherently, I, I, when I'm the most cynical about humanity, I don't think about our scientific achievements and our just unbelievable levels of empathy and compassion for one another and kindness. I think about monster truck rallies <laughs> and people just being not so bright and littering and that that is on its way to mars <laughs> we're like no, no no the people going to mars they're going to be so self-sufficient they got to really work with the most limited resources like yeah yeah, yeah. give it ten thousand years give it a thousand years give it a few generations and then it'll be like smash it up <laughs> turn it up so we're doomed but i it's i that's too cynical but yeah, I don't know. I to think that way is just negative. That's not helping anything. I do think the front edge of it is still cool. The yeah. exploring, the going oh, out yeah. there. Because maybe it would. I mean, and then there's some isolation aspects of it that could be fun. Say they get enough little bases and areas put together that you could be like, you can stay here. Got all these monster truck rallies. There's one place out there. <laughs> it's pretty remote. There's no TV or internet. You just everyone's just hanging out in peace and quiet. Like I'm gonna go check that out. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot. Of, so you love these books, by the way, because <laughs> there's a lot of things because that people can just live however they want. So mm-hmm. they slowly start to terraform Mars. And then so these are like a group of people who just like, they just, I mean, maybe this isn't that appealing to you. It's not that appealing to me, but they, they make it sound appealing. It's where they just live like running constantly, chasing like a herd of deer that they had like adapted to live on Mars and so they're just this pack of humans just like <laughs> running all day all night until they catch a deer and they slaughter it and they eat it and yeah. they just have these parties and they're just like eating this deer and then they rest and then they run after these deer because <laughs> I, I guess a, 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 at some point humans could out uh, like endurance yeah that, like, that book Born to Run yeah yeah there's like this tribe so yeah I mean we I mean it is I, I still think it is fascinating that over all of the the types of things that have changed throughout human evolution that we're now in this kind of city urban rural you know like we've built like the societies that have sort of built that we've kind of built upon it does seem a bit funny it seems a bit <laughs> strange and, and it's funny too that like the technology now especially has is like skyrocketing but it's almost like our institutions are still a bit i mean i'm not i'm not i i love the i love the united states i love <laughs> america but we're, we're, we're like obsessed with this document that was pretty old and that like ideas have changed and we, we're like even philosophy i always wonder like i mean i guess people who study philosophy like, this is like the dunning kruger like i don't know anything about this so i think like oh of course you should study this but like ideas for societies like do we think about that as developing and that sort of like technological like advancements of 
well, maybe we should develop our societies with a way that we kind of think about things slightly differently. And that, it's almost like we're, well, just like I don't like having a new cell phone, you know, like I like to hold on to these old things. Yeah. Um, And when something new comes around, I'm like, ah, you know, I'm not going to look at that. I'm going to stick to my book, you know, it's paper. Same. Yeah. I've, I've, I've always had that in a way where I'm like kind of rigid in, but, but also having an awareness when I would see things in people that were older that were too like immovable i'd be like well i'm not going to be that way if i recognize the trend i can choose whether or not to acknowledge it and or take part in it but i don't want to just blindly do it and Mm -hmm. i don't want to do it just or not do it just for the sake because people that are younger are doing it Mm -hmm. i try to approach it still the same you know when i was a kid and if there was a certain word everyone was saying i'd be like i'm gonna strictly not say it just Mm -hmm. because everyone's saying it and then but I wouldn't want to now as an old person be like, what's that word you're saying? What are the kids? Of? Ah. I don't want to be that. I'm like, I would yeah. recognize what's happening, choose whether or not to, but the phone thing is very much that. And I think that's to me, a disheartening part of humanity that people would wait in line for new Apple products. And you're watching from afar, like they're just duping you. They're just going to continuously change the charging ports, the <laughs> headphone jacks over and over just to buy just to sell you stuff it's yeah. planned obsolescence just to pr- keep an economy moving and you're buying right into it and we all were aware of these dystopian projections where you would live probably someone in this city didn't come to one of my shows in this area maybe listening to this show <laughs> ordered all their food from like Grubhub, got amazon stuff delivered right to them and can say yeah my carbon footprint's pretty small but are you living a life? Like, is that the is that the next level of it where you're isolated? This this voice in your ears right now is the communication you're having with humans, the interactions. You're not looking at someone's eyes. That's where it comes to, I think, with not moving on from smartphones or not wanting to have one. To mm-hmm. be like, I'd rather see eyeballs. I don't want to FaceTime someone or I don't want to like be beholden to this thing that the moment it buzzes, I go, what's that? What what is that? Yeah. Oh, Blue Aprons having a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it's Yeah, I think that it it is such a it's a weird I, I still think it's so weird, right? We were for how long had we just been used to like right, humans we lived in sort of groups of small groups of people. Yeah. For a really long time. Then all of a sudden, boom, we started gritting into like these different types of cities that were run very poorly and people were treated <laughs> awfully right and, but who knows maybe we were treated awfully even before then but i think we're we're used to being interacting with people and there's some people who yeah who are introverts like yeah, i don't really like interacting with people but i think in general there's not a lot of folks who are just like i just don't want to interact with anybody yeah. ever again like that seems a little odd and i think just yeah even talking on the phone with someone versus texting like i still am terrible at texting well yeah that was the other thing so i got this smartphone in january and i was holding it with my left hand and trying to text or type with my right hand yeah and then my my partner was like you know you can hold it with both hands and use your thumbs and i was like oh okay <laughs> now we're talking yeah but i was like i'm still terrible at it so I, I like to call people and i'm like the annoying friend who still leaves messages because i like getting a message i'll listen to a message how like much time am i really wasting or you know just to hear what someone said yeah. rather than just calling them right away and if i left a message i'll listen to it come on like i know people just hate that people despise that and people tell me i'm never gonna listen to your messages i still leave i them. don't get that yeah i leave them and they still need a prompt so my i just <laughs> I, I figure that people get the idea of like oh it's a voicemail there'll be a beep and my voicemail just says this is dave <laughs> that's you you know what to do yeah and then the, you'll hear every and then it goes new message and then you hear a silence and someone go uh, uh what was that what <laughs> I, uh, I think i reached you so they need the hi thanks for calling i couldn't get to the phone please call me back or i'll call you back leave your number whatever the things you say <laughs> like i don't know why that we need that in there but there, so there are certain like things social. that are archaically yeah, like social a- yeah exactly and yet uh no one wants to do it the moment that 
human connection is kind of lost in that way. People go, ah, I'm fine with that. It turns out I'm fine with it. Texting was when it first came out, people were like, no way. Who's going to want to write stuff? You can just say it. And then everyone instantly switched like, oh, it turns out I say just exactly what I want. And now people are mostly just communicating in little 20 frame animation things that are, oh, this cat putting on sunglasses. <laughs> That's how I feel about your text. So what are we becoming? That's just changing our language so much. And going back to your thing about the the document, like, the, you know, the, our constitution, we should be able to look at it like a charter where it's always changing. Oh, man, look at the beginning. They have this thing where women couldn't vote. That's exactly. crazy. And then you get to the newest one, like, oh, everyone, okay, you can't have a, a phaser. Eh, that makes <laughs> sense. I don't want to vaporize anyone. Exactly. I always think of that, like, what happens if technology, like, like, what happens if weapons get really, really sophisticated where you can, like, blow, like, a wormhole and, yeah. and then, like, like, collapse the whole fucking <laughs> science-space continuum. You're like... Hey, it's written I, in. They I, thought of this. Yeah, it's just like, oh boy. Well, we could, we could keep going. I don't know if you have time. I don't want to take up your whole afternoon. We've exhausted our two okay. uh, amounts of time for regular episodes. If you want to do some bonus chatting, we certainly can. Oh yeah, I'd love to. Okay, great. <laughs> so we'll conclude here with the regular portion, and then people that are in the Patreon group can listen to more. Uh, and maybe we might dive into another KSA. Maybe we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Well, Yoichi, this has been really great. Looking forward to the bonus chatting. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Pretty fascinating dude, that carbon cowboy. Thanks again to Yoichi for reaching out. Uh, if you've been sitting on the fence thinking, maybe I should, uh, please do. Pretty easy to get in touch with. You can uh, message pings at thespacecave.com or space underscore cave on Twitter. There's even a Space Cave podcast on Instagram, slowly compiling photos and things from guests and beers from the show. Uh, it's really not coming together all that quickly, but I will continue to work on it, uh, especially as I lounge around trying to get my voice and chest to heal up. That should be done any moment now. Anyway, uh, if you do support the show on Patreon, it allows it to continue to happen without ads, which I'm a big fan of. I can go on and on about the reasons why, but if you just, if you didn't even notice that, and thought, oh, that was kind of nice, well, then you can help out. This show is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. For as little as $2 a month, 50 cents a week, you can get access to usually one. Sometimes, I think this past month, we've had three or four full-length bonus episodes, so it depends. Overall, you're just kind of helping the show um, and all the things that go into it, beer, web hosting stuff, etc music so if you want to chip in on that and uh eventually hopefully we'll get to a place where enough people are helping out i can pay dan because for 200 episodes he's been just very loyally and diligently putting them together from australia and we've never met and perhaps one day we will get to if enough people get behind this little show that could so if you like it maybe tell a person or two rate it subscribe whatever helps the little algorithm grow but um by doing it through patreon we'll hopefully keep it ad free which i prefer okay this is a um musician that yoichi recommended and said i've like i followed this guy since college i like it i don't know if this song will fit in necessarily with the vibe of the show i think it definitely does i really enjoyed it this is from matt kevill it's called two braids thanks for stopping by the space cave
Love 